We're in a series on Daniel. In fact, we're almost done with this series. We'll finish it next week. Daniel is 12 chapters long. Uh, today we are looking at chapter 11. Pastor James is passing out the, uh, the attendance roster. If you let us know that you're here on a consistent basis, then we notice when you're gone and we can check in and care for you. So uh, Daniel's 12 chapters long. The first six chapters are kind of the court narratives talking about the experience of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in uh, Babylon, Babylonian captivity. And then chapters 7 through 12 talk about these visions God gave Daniel about what's to come. And uh, so we're in chapter 11 today. And it's a, it's a pretty long chapter, 45 verses uh, we're going to get into that moment. But first, if you haven't got it yet, here is the message of Daniel. Are you ready? Uh, at kind of its uh, highest level, the message of Daniel is this. Despite present circumstances, God is in control. I don't know how many people I've encountered who begin to question God when life gets tough. As if God has promised them uh, some kind of life of ease as long as they are faithful to Him. Uh, many people, they, they want that kind of an agreement with God. Even though God doesn't offer that, people sort of forced it upon Him. And then they're like, hey, God's you know, not protecting my children from bad things. He's, uh, my marriage isn't great. My finances aren't awesome. God's not holding up His part of the bargain. So I'm going to just throw God out the window. He's not doing what I need Him to do. Well, one of the things Daniel tells us is despite present circumstances, even when things get tough in your life, even when the people of God are on the bottom and wicked people seem to be the only ones prospering, God is in control. And so, so Daniel reminds us, or God through the prophet Daniel reminds us, that the way it all winds up is God is victorious and His people are vindicated. And knowing what's coming, knowing how it all winds up, encourages us today to be faithful to God, to stand strong in the faith, even when things are hard. So that's the big message. And hopefully you, as a child of God, are encouraged by that. Uh, we have bulletins. If you are focused by taking notes, look, we have fill in the blanks for you. And if you miss any of the messages so far, you can catch up online at clearwater.church. Um, one of the messages that, I, that is um, background to today's message is uh, chapter 8 that Pastor James preached, and so I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. It gives a lot of good context. So Daniel chapter 11, 45 verses long. It, there are three basic parts uh, or sections to this chapter. And the first is verses 2 through 20. And verses 2 to 20 describe what is now history, but when the angel gave it to Daniel, it was future. And it describes the period of 537 B.C., if I'm correct, to 176 B.C. Am I right on that? Eli, punch me up. There we go. Yeah, yeah. 537 to 176 B.C., a 361-year period of the Persian and Greek Empire. In fact, verse 2 covers 200 years of Persian uh, history and puts the Persian Empire to rest. And then uh, Alexander the Great bursts on the scene in verses 3 
and 4. And then verses 5 to 20, uh, Alexander's empire has been broken up into his, uh, between his three generals, and it focuses in on two of the generals, uh, Ptolemy down in Egypt and Seleucus up in the north. And so verses uh, 5 to 20 talk about these kings of the north and the kings of the south and their, con- their struggle uh, against each other, this tug of war as they, as they bo- are constantly trying to gain power over each other. And it's north and south of what? North and south of Israel. The center of the compass are, uh, is Israel, uh, the people of God. So for the Israelites, for the Jews... The Seleucids are up north, and the Ptolemies, I, I think I've got a uh, map of this here, Eli. And, but yeah, uh, and the, the Ptolemies are down there in Egypt. And the Seleucids, they're in green, and, and the Ptolemies there are in orange. And the promised land lies right in the middle as they, they keep fighting each other uh, back and forth. Now, if, if you read chapter 11, and you're a historian, you're, you're thinking, I would never have written the, the history of these years this way, because uh, very, very little uh, space is given to people like Alexander the Great and the mighty Persian Empire, and a ton of text is given to an obscure king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, and these kings of the north and the south, and uh, hi- historians don't view what matters in, in this way. Uh, but this is, this is important because prophecy is focused on the people and the purposes of God. That's what prophecy cares about. And so 200 years of Persian reign, snap it off with, with one verse, Alexander the Great's rise and fall, two verses. But then what... what the people of God care about are the, 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 the struggle between the kings of the north and the kings of the south and how they're constantly harassing the people of God. And then what really matters is Antiochus Epiphanes because he really makes hard a life hard for the Jewish people. Okay, so once again, verses 2 through 20 uh, deal with this 361 period year period. Then uh, verses 21 through 35, uh, focuses in on an 11-year period, the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, And the reason he's given so much text is because he is uh, very wicked and he gives the people of God a very hard time. So Antiochus Epiphanes is a Seleucid king. So he's from up north and uh, he's determined to gain power over Egypt. Verses 21 uh, through 27, or 28, describes kind of the first part of his reign. He goes down into Egypt, and he uh, has great victory. And there's some kind of an uneasy truce that they negotiate, and he heads back up north. Uh, A little while later, a number of years later, he decides he wants an even greater victory over Egypt, and so he marches south again. And so we pick up the story here in verse 29. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south. But it shall not be this time as it was before, because this time 
he's not going to be successful. For ships of Katim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. The ships of Katim are Romans, and the Romans did not want Antiochus Epiphanes to conquer Egypt, and so they sent uh, one of their consuls, uh, Gaius, to intercept uh, Antiochus and tell him, go back home. And so that's what happened. They, ships came over from Rome, they landed, intercepted Antiochus, and Gaius said, uh, we do not want you, we Romans do not want you uh, fighting against uh, uh, Ptolemy. And so go back home. And of course that's, you know, this is a, a mighty king being told what to do. He doesn't like that. So he says, his response is, well, I'm going to have to consult with my officials. To which Gaius drew a circle around him in the sand and said, you will decide before you step out of this circle. The Romans were totally on the ascendancy. They were becoming the big power in the world. And so Antiochus doesn't want to fight him, and he is forced. He becomes afraid, right? What does the text say? And he turns around. Now, where does, uh, if you're looking at the map, if, for him to turn around and go back home, he goes right through the Holy Land. He's, as you can imagine, he's humiliated, he's frustrated, he's enraged, and he vents his wrath on the people of God as he goes through their land. So let me read again. Ships of Katim shall come against him. He shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. We talk a little bit about this. So Antiochus Epiphanes was uh, um, committed to the process of Hellenization. Hellenization is the uh, exportation of Greek culture and religion. And uh, many people were Hellenized without, uh, just by choice. And, you know, hey, the Greeks were kind of the dominant culture and power in the world for uh, hundreds of years. And so a lot of people were like, get with the times, man. Let's, let's be like the Greeks. They're the most modern, powerful, civilized people. And so they just Hellenized um, by choice. But not those pesky Jews, now, some of the Jews did. See, there, there have always been amongst the visible people of God some who are not truly converted in their hearts. And so it was with the Jewish people of that time. Many of them were like, look, we really don't care about the old ways, right? And the worship of Yahweh, what's he, you know, what's he really gotten us? We've been, uh, uh, we've been at the mercy of these um, pagan powers for years, so... Uh, let's just get on board with them. They seem to have the power. So there were Jews, in fact, quite a lot of them, who were willing to Hellenize in order to curry favor with the Greeks and, and because they probably thought that was in their best interest. And so he shall turn back and pay attention to those, to those Jews who forsake the Holy Covenant, who are willing to Hellenize uh, of their own accord. And so he, he kind of uh, uh, gives them special favor. Verses 31. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress. And uh, Antiochus established a garrison right across from the temple to keep an eye on the temple. And shall take away the regular burnt offering, 
One of the things, so Antiochus, by the way, he was determined to Hellenize the Jews, and he was going to use uh, the power of the state to do it. So he abolished the, the, the Jewish sacrificial system, and he said, if you sacrifice on this altar to Yahweh, you will die. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. In fact, he, he, made, he put an uh, sacrifice to Zeus on the temple altar. And it set up, um, set up some kind of a, an idol in the temple itself. And historians believe it was a meteorite uh, for the pur purpose of the worship of Baal, which was uh, the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. So Jewish people who are being unfaithful to God, and he's flattering them, right? You're going to be better off, uh, and I'll, I will reward you. And this is the way to the future, a better future for you and your people. Uh, give, up the way, give up the past. What's it done for you? Give up the God of your, of your ancestors. What has he done for you? But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. The Hasmoneans and eventually the Maccabeans uh, resisted and overthrew eventually. And the wise among the people shall make many understand Though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. So think about, you know, you're a Jew, uh, and, and living in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes, and if you want to remain faithful to God, you run the risk of the sword or flame. He burns you alive. He thrusts a, a sword through your, through your chest. Uh, by captivity, you, you get... You know, you get put in prison and plunder. You know, Antiochus, hey, feel free to go in there, take everything that guy has, drain his bank accounts, right? Being faithful to God was costing the people of God. There was massive physical and psychological pressure put, against, put upon the people of God to get them to uh, abandon God and faithfulness. Now, as far as I understand, Antiochus Epiphanes was the first to ever use the power of the state to try to uh, um, force uh, unfaithfulness, spiritual unfaithfulness. But he's not, he's not the last. He's the first. Thus, he becomes the prototype of the Antichrist. But he's not the last. There have been many since, since his day in history who have used the power of the state to try to get the people of God to abandon faithfulness to God. And in that, he's the prototype of the Antichrist. And John tells us in 1 John that uh, although there is coming at the end of days an Antichrist with a capital A, even now many Antichrists have come. And so uh, what the people of God are going to experience for Daniel, you know, so Daniel's being told this by the, the angel, what the people of God uh, experience under the time of Antichrist, the people of God have experienced since then multiple times, and it will be um, most extreme right before Jesus returns. <clears throat> Some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, 
for it still awaits the appointed time. So even in all that hardship, God is working for good in the lives of his people. <clears throat> so any, any and all historians, <laughs> all historians who read Daniel chapter 11 agree. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, everyone agrees. Verses 2 through um, 35 are describing what happened in the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, uh, the breakup of the Greek Empire, the, the rise of the Romans. Uh, those who know history look at this and they say, yeah, even though names aren't given, we can see exactly what's happening. And that is uh, clearly historically accurate. In fact, um, unbelievers say, well, this just helps us date the writing of Daniel. <laughs> because uh, obviously this was written about 164 or 165 years before Christ. Um, all of this stuff had already happened, and then the author of Daniel wrote, put it, you know, wrote it down, uh, used a, a, kind of, uh, a kind of language that sounded like it was prophecy, put it in the words of an angel, but it was written after the fact. And why do they believe that? Well, because, you know, nobody can predict hundred years, years of adva in advance what's going to happen. I mean, unbelievers just do not believe in prophecy, period. So it had to have been written after the fact. It's so ridiculously accurate. You know, nobody could do this. It would be Nostradamus on, like, unbelievable steroids, right? So for, for the unbelieving scholar, this... This tells us exactly when uh, this book was written, 164, 165 years before Christ. However, believing scholars, we, you know, evangelicals, we, we look at this and we say, well, wait a second, wait a second. <laughs> if you believe that God gave Daniel the ability to interpret a dream he'd never even heard, right? Remember the king said, I'm not even going to tell you what I dreamed. I want you to tell me what I dreamed and its interpretation. And Daniel was able to do it because God gave him that special insight. Wait a second, wait a second. If you believe that God could keep Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, untinged by, while in the fiery furnace, not even a hair of their head was burned, and they come out alive from that, if you believe that God can shut the mouth of lions and keep Daniel uh, alive amongst a, a ravenous, what do you call it, a lion pack? Pride. Ooh, yeah, lion pride. Uh, all night long. Well, when you get to chapter 11 and an, and an angel from heaven comes down and says, let me tell you what's going to happen in the next hundreds of years, we're not surprised because we believe in a God who is totally in control of all things, including history and time. And so we're not surprised. In fact, we believe, and let me say this here at Clearwater Church, we believe that God sent an angel at, at 537 B.C. to tell Daniel what was going to take place uh, hundreds of years in the future, and it was totally accurate because God knows what's coming. God knows the future. That's the first big takeaway so far. Got it up there? Because he has an underline. People need an underline. Eli. Who's in charge here? Ah, I'm, I've been slamming Eli back here. Hayden, give me my next point. There we go. God knows the future.
We need our underlines, man, because we got bulletins to fill out. God knows the future. And how comforting this is. Nothing takes God by surprise. God is totally sovereign of, of the world that he's created, of the timeline that he has created. God is totally sovereign. The people of God need to know that. A, a second big takeaway is the fact that all time is appointed time. And this is just such a marvelous truth. Uh, and so while talking about uh, Ante- the coming of Antiochus Epiphanes, this terrible enemy of the people of God, who will terrorize the people of God uh, during his lifetime, uh, we read indications that even the chaotic time of Antiochus Epiphanes is appointed time, and it's under the sovereign control of God. Verse 24 we read, he shall, defi- he shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. Verse 27, as for the two kings, the king of the north and the south, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. For the end is yet to be at the time appointed. Verse 29, at the time appointed... He shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. And then verse 35. Some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Who's appointing the time? Why is it called appointed time? Because God is appointing the time. So even, even when Antiochus Epiphanes is terrorizing the people of God, even when he is, appears to be on top, God is really on top. And it's all appointed time. God has something that he wants done and has appointed a time for it to be done. And it will be done. Even, so even, even the chaotic time, even the hard times in our life, even the times when we're persecuted and, and, and beaten down and on the bottom, it's still under the sovereign, good control of God. It's still appointed time. And then you fast forward to the, to the New Testament, Romans 8, 28. All things, all things work together for good to those who love God. And are called according to his purpose. All things, you, without exception, your, even your failures and even the terrible things done to you, somehow God is weaving a tapestry of good. And, and eventually, when we are with God for eternity, we'll be able to see it all and we'll say, God, we worship you and we praise you. And so listen, child of God, Do not give up on God in the hard times. You might not be able to see it right now, but you can use the eyes of faith. You can use the eyes of faith, and and they say, you know what? This is not the way I would run my life. (laughs) This is not the lot I would have written for myself. But all time is appointed time. God is working all things out for good in my life, and I'm going to trust him. And I'm going to walk by faith through this. And I'm not going to give up on God when things get tough. And that's, you know, fundamentally, that's why God tells his people what's going to come. 
because he knows that there will be really, really hard times in our lives and we will need our faith to be buoyed up by a confident assurance of the fact that God will be uh, victorious and his people will be vindicated. There's one other point that jumps out from these verses and uh, it's just that the the wicked machinations uh, of the powerful never achieve the desired rest. And, and I won't get into it, um, show you that in, in Scripture. Go back and read it for yourself. But, you know, the kings of the north try so hard to dominate the kings of the south, and it just every, all their, all their uh, machinations achieve nothing. And the kings of the south, when they have a chance, go against the kings of the north. They try so hard. And it's it just futile. It's the futility of wicked men trying to make the world right in their eyes. It just never works out because God won't bless wickedness with rest. The world will not achieve, uh, will not experience rest until Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords of every human heart. And we long for that, so we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Doesn't mean we give up on the world, right? We still, you know, I, I've been meditating this week on the, um, do not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season you shall weep a, a reap a harvest if you don't give up, right? We need to hear that because well-doing Doing good can just feel like the tiniest drop in this ocean of evil. What good is it? What good is it? God sees it, and God will, re will reward it, and it will reap a harvest in, in his time. So don't, we don't give up. All right, now we get to verses 36 to 45. Verses 36 to 45 are most likely talking about the Antichrist, capital A, who will come at the end of time and will oppress the people of God. Uh, like Antiochus Epiphanes, but with even greater um, worldwide impact and even greater uh, ferocity, and it's, it'll be the worst. And then Christ will return. Now, um, textually, there's very little indication that we have shifted from Antiochus Epiphanes to this future Antichrist. My suspicion is Daniel himself did not know that he was that the angel was now talking about someone new. Um, but of course, for Daniel, all of this stuff is hundreds of years in the future. But we have more uh, knowledge because we have hindsight of history, and we have the New Testament and all of its talk about the Antichrist. Um, but textually, you would, you would think that verse 36 is just continuing a discussion of um, Antiochus Epiphanes, because we read, and the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the kingdom until the indignation is accomplished. Whose indignation? I think that's God's indignation. Now, um, secular historians 
Oh, oh yeah, I should say this. So why, why do we not think it's talking about Antiochus Epiphanes? Well, because what, what verses 36 to 45 describe uh, were not true of Antiochus Epiphanes. He didn't do those things. It doesn't describe him. Daniel wouldn't have known that, right? Now, secular historians, uh, unbelieving historians, they say, ah, that makes total sense. And in fact, it just helps us date the book because uh, if the book was written in 164, 65 BC, then everything that had come until that point was history, and thus he got it right. But verses 36 to 45, whoever the author of Daniel was, actually tries to do some predictive prophecy. And of course, gets it wrong on many fronts because nobody can prophesy. And so their argument is that the author of Daniel was living during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes and was writing a, you know, wrote the book of Daniel in order to encourage the people of God to remain faithful to God even under the tyranny of Antiochus Epiphanes. And he, he writes this history and puts it in the mouth of the angel in order to cause the people, uh, the Jewish people, to believe that God, you know, had foreseen all this. Um, and then, but and then he tries to predict what's going to, you know, what the end of Antiochus Epiphanes will be, and he gets it wrong, right? So hey, there, this makes total sense because now we have the the date correct. Um, one of the reasons that just does not make sense, though, is because if that's correct, then this author knows that the Romans have said you may not conquer Egypt, and then he has. In verses 35 to, uh, 36 to 45, he has uh, this king conquering Egypt. That, I mean, anybody's doing predictive prophecy, that'd be really dumb if you know that the Romans are against that. So I don't buy this argument. In fact, what, uh, what almost all evangelical scholars believe is that verses 36 to 45 are describing a future final opponent, opponent of the people of God, the Antichrist. So I read, um, I already read verse 1. He shall prosper until the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these, a god whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, talking about Israel, and tens of thousands shall fall. But these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main parts of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver, and all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, 
yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. So three characteristics of the Antichrist that we see here. Number one, self-willed. He's going to do whatever he wants to do without regard for God, without regard for social norms. This king says, I am going to shape the world into what I want it to be because he perceives himself at the very top, self-willed. Secondly, blasphemous. Says unbelievably blasphemous things against the God of gods, has no regard for the gods of his ancestors. He just he's just a, a blasphemous, irreligious person. Uh, and uh, has no fear of God, respect for God. God is dead, is probably what he says and thinks. And then finally, worships power. The God of fortresses is his God. All he cares about is might and power and domination. So he views other people as uh, not peers, but um, objects to be overcome, to be manipulated, to be harnessed for his own agenda. A couple of big takeaways. Number one, reject the spirit of Antichrist. This is a person. This is a person who has made choices to think a certain way about himself and about the world, about other people, and about what's important and about what will bring him joy. And I think that that spirit of Antichrist is within all of us. You ever been (laughs) self-willed? said, I'm going to do it my way without regard for what God says or what, without regard for what you know, other people would like me to do. I'm going to just do it my way and, and let the chips fall. I don't care how, how my pursuits affect other people. I want what I want. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. We have that bent in us, don't we? What about blasphemous? You ever grown tired of... of trying to live a life that serves God and obeys God and lets God call the shots? You ever, you have it within you, you're just like, I just want to do what I want to do. Why do I have to always ask, what, is it right or is it wrong? Is it good or bad? Why can't I just do it? We have that, Ben, don't we? I don't want someone else on the throne of my life. I want to be on the throne of my life. Or worship's power. If I just had more money, a better position, more respect, if I didn't have to think about other people, let other people uh, weigh their desires and their needs. So I don't think it's, I think we need to be not just say Antichrist, capital A totally other and different, and and I have no danger of going there in my own heart and mind. Yes, we do. That's where the sin nature takes us. I think the Antichrist is, it's the sin nature, let loose, you know, let, let run. So we need to identify these, temp, these tendencies in us and reject them and humble ourselves before the Lord. Secondly, I don't, I don't think we're to think 
that much about the tribulator. We're not, you know, Antiochus Epiphanes was bad. He was bad news. The Antichrist will be bad news. Every small Antichrist that has plagued the people of God has been bad news. Uh, but I don't think we're going to be all that impressed with them. Why? Well, look at the way the chapter ends. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. That's the fate of the Antichrist and every Antichrist and every self-willed, blasphemous uh, person who thinks they have power. They come to their end with none to help. Their, their time of tyranny is always appointed time for, for a time, and then it's gone. So, so, yeah, I don't want to live during the time of the Antichrist. I, I, I'm thankful that I get to live now. Uh, in the United States of America. And I know that my brothers and sisters in Christ, some in some parts of the world, have it far, far worse than I do. And in, in certain times in history, it's been terrible. And when the Antichrist has power in the world, it's going to be terrible. And God will give the strength and the courage and the faith to his people that they need to bear up under it. And I'm glad I don't have to have to go there. But I'm not, we don't, we don't need to really, we don't need to be afraid and to be impressed with the Antichrist because he will come to his end with none to help him. And who will, be, who will remain standing after the Antichrist? The people of God and the purposes of God and God's agenda and his good plans for us and his world. I want to end with um, a final affirmation. Um, go ahead and throw that up there. Eli, ha, just kidding. So I'm going to read it out loud. I think this summarizes well what chapter 11 calls us to. I'm going to read it out. Think about it, and then I'm going to ask you to read it out by faith yourself. God is working out his good purposes for his people in every circumstance, so I have reason to be happy even when Antiochus Epiphanes is in charge or the Antichrist has power. God is working out his good purposes for his people in every circumstance. So I have reason to have it. Ready to say that together out loud? Here we go. God is working out his good purposes for his people in every circumstance, so I have reason to be happy. Let's pray. Lord, we embrace that truth. Thank you, God, for caring enough about us that you sent an angel from heaven to remind Daniel and through Daniel remind us that you are sovereign over history. All time is appointed time. The end is good and victorious and that we should have faith to stand firm now. We choose to do that in Jesus' name, amen.